So 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in here, and we left off in a very interesting verse. And we took some time. It was on, uh, on Palm Sunday. And we ended in 1 Peter 4, verse 7, where we read, But the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be serious and watchful in your prayers. Now, that's not Peter, you know, being some pessimistic downer. He's writing that to let these persecuted believers who are going through difficulty to encourage them that this is not, uh, this is all temporary. These things are not going to last. These things are, are going to pass because why? Well, the Lord is coming again. And so with that idea and thinking, he's encouraging them now and motivating them to live to their fullest ability and live to their fullest potential in the days that they do have because we don't know when we're going to be guaranteed our next day so don't let difficulty discourage you rather go these are temporary i'm living in a world that's not my home i'm waiting for my real eternal home and until that day i'm going to live in a way that's going to glorify god the most and that's what peter's looking at and that's what we get to look at here in the rest of chapter four And we're going to see that kind of as our theme. All for the glory of God is what I've titled this message. All for the glory of God. So we're going to see, first of all, glorifying God through gifts and then glorifying God through suffering. All right. That part isn't going to be one that we're going to enjoy, but we're going to see the benefits definitely that come through suffering and how God desires to use that. So glorifying God through gifts and then glorifying God through suffering so look at verse 8 with me peter writes and above all things have fervent love for one another for love will cover a multitude of sins so we start off with a a very key ingredient that should be the mark of the christian and that is love right because jesus said in john 13 35 but this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another right that's how people are going to know that there's something different about you, that you're truly a follower of Jesus is if you have love for one another. That's to be the characteristic above everything else of the follower of Jesus. Now, Peter says, and I like that, he says, above all things, above everything else, have love. See, there's a lot of attitudes and emotions or even actions that we can see rising to the top of our lives, right? A lot of things that we can see happen, a lot of attitudes that aren't good and healthy and and wholesome, just standing in line, having to to follow the arrows in a a supermarket and not go the wrong way. I mean, who thought that there would be a one-way street in our grocery stores? And that's what we're dealing with now. And so there's a lot of, at times, tensions that can easily rise and attitudes and actions that can come out, that can rise above everything else. But what we are to see as believers is love winning out. And love being put above all things. That's what's to be preeminent in our lives. When you are walking in the fullness of love, you are reaching the pinnacle of what we are to be and to do. Look at what Colossians 3 verse 12 to 14 says. It says this, Colossians 3 verse 12. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness humility meekness long suffering bearing with one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another even as christ forgave you so you also must do but he says 
But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Love then becomes kind of like the glue that really holds all things together, that enables us to walk in this perfection that we're called to be. We're, we're called to be perfect as he is perfect, right? This love is to be prominent, preeminent, and it's to have its proper place. Without love, we have nothing. Or we are nothing. 1 Corinthians 12, or sorry, 1 Corinthians 13, uh, verse 2. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains, but have not love, what does Paul say? I am nothing. I'm nothing. And Peter says to not just have love for one another, but he says to have what kind of love? Fervent love. Fervent love. That's an interesting word. Uh, it's the word ectenis in the Greek. It's an athletic word. It's the word that means to stretch and reach out to strain and exert to the utmost degree, just like an athlete does in a race. Now, now for me, it's like before I even race, I need to be stretching. I need to, I need to be like, you know, given the old hamstrings or, or whatever those things are, your thighs, quad, I don't know what they are, but you can see I work out a lot, but I got to stretch out it before I race or else I'm going to be pulling something, you see. And, and so even in a race, though, you're giving it everything you've got. You're just stretching out. You're, you're just pouring everything into it. And that's what Peter's saying here. Uh, above all things, have fervent love. Have a love that's just reaching out, that's, that's ready to strain. That's something that's, in a sense, going to cost you. You might need to do some stretching beforehand, doing some, you know, warm-ups here about having that right kind of love, but having that mindset that love is going to be demonstrated in your love, in, in your life. Love is that which takes us to higher ground in how we respond to people and treat people. Notice what he, he continues on there in verse 8. He says that, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Now, some people have taken this and thought that we can you know, do what we want now, as long as we walk in love. All you need is love. Right? All you need is love. love. And that's the idea that some people live by. It's like, you know what? We just need more love. And love is just going to make everything right. But listen, don't take this statement and twist it into some doctrinal statement that overlooks sin, as long as you're being loving. Because that's what the world wants to do. Oh, don't, don't, talk about my sin just love this is not saying that love is going to remove sin only jesus can do that now yes jesus demonstrated the ultimate love by coming to this world and sacrificing his life for ours so that we could be forgiven of sin yes love moved jesus to do the work of forgiving our sin but sin or sorry love does not remove sin but what Peter's saying here is that love is going to overlook faults and wrongdoings in people's lives. If we're not walking in love, well, then we're going to see all the wrongs that people have done against us. We're going to see all the mistakes they've made, and we're going to hold that against them. And that's not what we're called to do. We're called to be loving, gracious, and forgiving one another as Christ has forgiven us. That's what we're called to do. Peter seems to be quoting from Proverbs 10, verse 12, where it says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. 
See, love isn't looking to win an argument. Love isn't demanding to be right. Love yields, it surrenders, it's quick to admit wrong. And this isn't something that comes naturally to most of us. That's why love needs to be above all things. Because if it's not, then we keep striving for our desires. Self then is seeking to be exalted and to reign supreme. But love must be above all and reigning supreme. Love is not, love is quick to admit wrong. In fact, the three hardest things to say, I'm sorry, I was wrong, and Worcestershire sauce. That's a tough one too. I don't know who came up with that word, but those are are things that are hard to say. But you see, our, our ego can so easily get in the way of us walking in love. If we're looking at all the wrongs, the things that people are doing against us that are, are maybe hurting us. See, we have no problem letting self hang out at the top a little longer than allowed. But let's let love be above all things. Let's let love be the way that we respond to people, how we interact with people. Because that's the very character of God, isn't it? 1 John 4, 8, He who does not love does not know God. Why? Because God is love. That's the very character and essence of God. God is love. This love is something that is to be demonstrated and seen. Just as our DC Talk friends saying, love is a verb, right? How many people are remembering that song right now? Love is a verb. And it's something that is to be put into action now in how we live. And Peter gives us some instruction next on doing just that. Look at verse 9. Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Now in this day of quarantining, being hospitable is not so easily done with those outside of our home. In fact, it might just get you in trouble if you're trying to do that. But perhaps that's something that we need to do more with those around us. I told my wife how thankful I was to have someone I enjoyed being quarantined with. She looked at me and said, must be nice. That wasn't very loving of her. But uh, So here's the deal. We're to be hospitable. Hospitable. I like that. It's the Greek word. Uh, philoxenos, philoxenos, where we have the word philos, meaning friend, and xenos, meaning stranger. So what that word means is that we're to be a friend to strangers. In other words, we're to be welcoming and loving to people whether we know them or not. I love that word hospital. It just, it reminds you of a hospital, right? Hospitable, hospital, the place where you go to be made well. And that's the idea here. As Christians, we're to be a place a people where, where others can find help, healing, and comfort. We're to be that to each other. This often becomes the, the opening to pointing people to God. Now, in this day, this was super relevant and practical because Peter's writing to these believers that have been undergoing persecution and suffering. They've been driven away from their homes. And so... To know that within the church, they've got people that they can count on, that they can go to, where, where inns and hotels or, or other resources weren't readily as available or as safe as we might see them today, they were able to go to another Christian family's home and find retreat, find comfort, find help. That was the idea here. And as we saw in, in Hebrews on Wednesday night, what a great book we went through there and um, even the writer of Hebrews is writing to Christians who had turned to Jesus out of Judaism and now their, their families were kind of like disowning them and they're, they're in need. And so they needed to come and find that place of hospitality with one another. In fact, 
the writer says in Hebrews 13, verse 2, do not forget to entertain strangers. And he went on to say, for by so doing, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now, some might be reading this and thinking, you mean I need to host people in my home just because I'm a Christian? Well, that kind of stinks. All right, well, let's just get this over with and let's just have somebody over and just fulfill our duty or our obligation, right? You might be tempted to think that way, but Peter says we're to do so without grumbling. This isn't something that we do as just kind of like our, our Christian duty. Well, I better fulfill my... No, this is something that we should be enjoying to do. And when we put on love above everything else, this becomes the natural outflow then of that love. Being hospitable becomes a natural byproduct of loving others, seeking to bless them and serve them. And as part of the family of God, serving one another is what we should all be about. Look at how, how, how Peter just continues on here now in verse 10. As each one has received a gift, minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Notice, each of us who are in Christ has received a gift. It, it doesn't say you will or you might receive a gift. It says you have received a gift. God has gifted each of us as the church to be able to minister to one another. And I love that because so often the pastor, he gets, you know, titled that term minister. And a lot of people can kind of sit back and go, well, he's the minister. Let him minister. Let him do the work. Something needs done. Well, he's the guy. Let him do it. But what I love here is that Peter says, each of us has received a gift, so now minister it to one another. In other words, you are all called to be ministers. That word minister just simply means, again, that area of of service. Serve one another. That's what we're called to do. Each of us has a role within the church, and God has equipped and gifted each of you to fulfill that role in blessing the church. Now, you might be thinking, well, what's, what's my gift? If you're not sure, I'd like to ask you to try out the gift of giving. And I'm happy to be your first test case on that if you want to give that a go. Uh, that's one of the gifts. But you see, in all seriousness, the gifts kind of get a, a bit of a, a misunderstanding today. Some teach that the gifts have even ceased in the church, that they were only for the early church. Listen, I don't believe that's true. I believe that the gifts are for today and we need them. The word for gifts is the Greek word charisma. It's where we get our word charismatic. And it's the charismatic movement that oftentimes has kind of made this the spectacle of gifts or, or kind of, you know, misused the gifts in some ways. But the gifts that the Bible speaks of range from the miraculous to the very practical. In fact, if you've got your Bibles at home, and I hope you do, turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, because we're going to look at what the Bible says about gifts and, and just look at some of these these gifts that have been given to the church. So we're going to start at 1 Corinthians 12, verse 4, and then we're going to make our way over to Romans chapter 12. So find your way to Romans 12. Just hold your place and keep yourself in 1 Corinthians 12. We'll start in verse 4. It says, There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences in ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. For to one is given the word of wisdom, 
through the Spirit, to another the word of knowledge through the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the same Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another discerning of spirits, to another different kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. But one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So we see all these different gifts, and these are some of the more, you know, kind of miraculous gifts that we see, gifts of healings, right? Uh, prophecy, uh, gifts of, of speaking in tongues, interpretation of tongues. These are all kind of these more, you know, miraculous kinds of gifts. But then Romans chapter 12 lays out for us, again, some very practical giftings that are to be exercised in the church and for the church. Romans 12 verse 4 says this, For as we have many members in one body, but all the members do not have the same function, so we, being many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, let us prophesy in proportion to our faith. Or ministry, let us use it in our ministering. He who teaches in teaching, he who exhorts in exhortation, he who gives with liberality, he who leads with diligence, he who shows mercy with cheerfulness. I think that's so awesome where we see just some very practical things. Exhorting, ministry, right? These are ways that we serve and bless one another. You might look at the gifts and think, oh my goodness, that's not my place. I can't, I don't know how to prophesy. I don't know how to, I mean, healing, that's not for me. That's for those guys on TV, right? I mean, that's not for me. But, but Peter says, listen, you've all been given a gift. How is God working in your life? How has he supernaturally equipped you to bless the body? And I love to see people operating in their gifts in the church today. I see many people that are so faithful in serving. And a lot of times these gifts are exercised in ways that are unseen, almost you know behind the scenes that i'd say the majority of the church don't even recognize or realize that these guys are are serving in that way but yet they're exercising the way that god has equipped them and gifted them to bless and to serve the church and i'm so thankful for all of you that serve so faithfully in the church and those of you that have been kind of wondering what's my role what's my place pray for the lord to just you know show you clearly that that area of gifting and the way that you can come and just bless the church. Because we all have a part to play in that. Now, here's what Peter says we've been given. We've been given uh, these gifts. Going back to, to 1 Peter 4 verse 10. Um, Minister it to one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. That's, that's pretty cool. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Now, what does that mean exactly? Well, that word manifold simply means multicolored or variegated. It's interesting that, that Peter uses the same word for manifold in 1 Peter 1 verse 6 where he says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be you've been grieved by various trials. Various or, or manifold trials. Here he uses it at one point for trials, but now he uses it for grace that we've been shown. In other words, what he's saying is that God has shown us this many faceted, multicolored, this variety of grace, which is the word charis. This grace is the gifts he's given us, the charisma. And it's, and it's in a great variety, you see. In other words, we don't all have to do the same thing. 
Don't look to see what others are doing and go, hmm, I kind of like that gift. That looks pretty awesome. I think I'm going to try that out. We don't all have to be doing the same thing. There's a, a variety. There's a diversity that takes place within the church of exercising these gifts. See and pray and ask God to show you what he has equipped you and how he's using you and be content with that because every person has a part to play. For some, it's very obvious and it might be up in the front. And for others, it's going to be kind of in the, in the background where maybe not everybody sees. But here's the great thing is that God's equipped you in that. And as you walk in obedience to how he's gifted you, you're going to be blessed because you're fulfilling God's calling in your life. And you're going to be rewarded. You're not rewarded for having the, the, the greater or more public gift. You're rewarded for functioning in the way that God has gifted you and doing so in obedience. As good stewards of the manifold grace of God, being a good keeper and, and using that wisely. So I pray that you continue to exercise those gifts that God has has placed in your life and be blessed as you use those things. Don't be, a, don't be a container. Don't use these gifts for personal use or for you know your own benefit. That's the wrong way to look at it. We're not to be containers. We're to be conduits where this grace is flowing in us. These giftings are, are being at work in us and they're flowing out of us to encourage, to exhort, to build up, to bless and to serve the body of Christ. That's what we're to be doing. Look at what he says in verse 11. If anyone speaks, let him speak as the oracles of God. If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies, that in all things God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, to whom belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So there's this variety of gifts, a great diversity. If you speak, what does Peter say? Well, do it as the oracles of God. Let it be God that's speaking through you. If it's in, in just ministry, do it with the ability which God supplies. And that is so key, everybody. Because like I said, there's a tendency to elevate certain gifts and desire thinking or, or thinking that they're, they're really going to be impressive or, or make a name for ourselves. And some people have used gifts to kind of exalt themselves. But what we need to do is simply minister as God has equipped you, and do it unto him and for his glory. That's what we're talking about here today. Glorifying God through gifts. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 31, but earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And what does he do? Takes us in chapter 13 to talk all about love, right? I'm going to show you a more excellent way, love. And how does Peter start our, our message here in verse 8? Above all things... Put on love. See, what love does is it kind of puts self down and it seeks to glorify God and bless other people. And that's what we're to be doing in and through our gifts. Now, there's a real danger for some to think, well, again, I, I can't think, I don't think God can work through me or use me in that way. Ever thought that before? Ever thought that I'm, it's just a little me? What can God do with me? I'm not, I'm not like those other people that are kind of out there and they're just very, you know, they're just very naturally kind of charismatic. I can't do that. Well, maybe God's not calling you to do that. But here's the thing, is that God supplies the ability. That's what, what Peter says there. 
If anyone ministers, let him do it as with the ability which God supplies. That in all things, God may be glorified. You see, don't think that you need to perform this. It's God working in you and through you that will do the work. And, and if you are doing it on your own, then you're going to get the glory. But if you do it through God's ability, then he gets the glory for it. Jesus said, without me, you can do nothing. And that's important because if we think we're the possessor of this ability, then we can begin to think we don't need God or we use these gifts for our glory and benefit. Peter says that in all things, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. He'll be glorified when we remain humble and realize we can only do what we do through the Lord equipping us and gifting us to do so. So after looking at these gifts and looking at glorifying God through gifts, Peter kind of turns the corner a little bit now and he again begins to deal with their present situation. He talks about how we can glorify God now through suffering. Glorifying God through suffering. Look at verse 12. Beloved, Do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now remember, Peter's writing to predominantly Gentiles, Gentiles who are followers of Jesus now, and were facing this heavy persecution from Rome. Perhaps they were thinking, listen, as a Christian, shouldn't I be exempt from any kind of suffering and difficulty? Didn't I turn to Jesus so that I would not have to go through all this kind of stuff? And for Gentiles, suffering and religious persecution was something very new to them. For the Jews, I mean, that was something that had been a part of uh, of a great deal of their history, right? But for these Gentiles, this would have been something new for them. So Peter says, listen, Don't think that it's strange that you would go through this fiery trial. It's interesting that much of the history of the church has been marked by the persecution of Christians. It's only in more recent times and typically just in Christian cultures that suffering for your faith in Jesus has been the exception rather than the rule. I mean, we live in a very fortunate time and place here. Uh, living in North America where we're not seeing that kind of persecution. It's been built upon a, a kind of Christian foundation, though we see that that has been crumbling and changing and turning, no doubt, and very rapidly. But we haven't had to go through persecution yet. That has kind of been uh, a big trait throughout history uh, upon Christians. So Peter says to these Gentiles that, again, this might have been very new to, don't think this is strange or odd. And he mentions this is a fiery trial. Again, that could be meant literally as Christians were, you know, being dipped in tar or, or oil and, and lit on fire. They were becoming, you know, being made as human torches in Nero's gardens. I mean, it was a, a very awful thing the way that Christians were being treated and tortured. And for some, it was truly, literally a very fiery trial. But perhaps Peter's using this in a metaphorical way where he's implying that our trials have a purifying and purging effect in our lives as it burns away the things that are unimportant. The things that maybe we've been focused on and living for that really have no bearing in our Christian lives anymore. And trials has a way of just kind of burning away those things. 
Now, not only are we to be unsurprised by trials, but now Peter says we're to rejoice in them. How so? Well, first of all, he says because we become partakers of what Christ himself went through. Maybe you know that to be true in your life in a, in a personal way where you've experienced something that was very difficult and hard and somebody else has undergone that same kind of trial or circumstance. And there's a bonding kind of effect that takes place in your lives where you meet with somebody that has gone through the same struggles or difficulty that you've been through and there's something that just, just binds you together. There's this, this deeper fellowship that you enjoy together when we share the same experiences with others brings us closer in fact paul wrote in philippians 3 verse 10 that i may know him jesus and the power of his resurrection of his resurrection and he says the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death abraham had the opportunity of being a partaker of the of the sufferings of god or walking in the fellowship of the sufferings of god how so because in Genesis 12, Abraham was called to take his son, his only son whom he loved, Isaac, and go and sacrifice him. Think about that. For three days, Abraham made that journey to Isaac, considering him as though he were dead. It's the very thing that God would do in sending his own son. And so Abraham got to partake in this fellowship of suffering with God and grow in this deeper fellowship and relationship with him. So you can rejoice in these things knowing you're sharing in and being linked to Jesus in his sufferings. And it's producing a greater joy in our lives. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 to 3 says, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. See, Jesus endured the suffering for the glory which it would bring. And our lives ultimately exist for the glory of God. And so if we can bring glory to God through our suffering, well, that's the way that our our joy is going to be most increased. See, persecution is the way to glory. The cross is the way to the crown. Jesus Christ is no one's debtor and his joy and crown await all who through thick and thin remain true to him. That's why we can keep going and persisting on is knowing that there's greater glory coming in the immediate as we bring glory to God but there's glory coming for us as we become partakers in the very suffering with Jesus Christ here. Well, continuing on here, verse 14, if you are reproached for the name of Christ, blessed are you for the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he is blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Jesus said, blessed are you when they persecute you. Matthew chapter five, verse 10 to 12 talks about how we're gonna be blessed when they come and persecute you and revile you. There's something to be said for the person that is willing to go through suffering for Jesus. It shows that you're truly his. And God loves to bless those who are following him obediently and willingly. Again, God is glorified in and through our suffering as we stand for him, as we seek to honor him and hold true to him. God is glorified. And when that is happening, 
then you're going to be blessed. You're going to be refreshed in the spirit who is resting on you, as, as Peter says here. But he says, the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. On their part, he's blasphemed, but on your part, he is glorified. Are we allowing God to be glorified in our lives? Are we worried about how others are looking to us, talking about us? Or have we just put on love above all things? Where love will cover over a, a, a multitude of sins and said, you know what? I'm going to continue to walk in love. I'm going to continue to live for God. I'm going to continue to allow all of my, my circumstances, my, my trials, my difficulties to be opportunities for God to be glorified in and through them. And He will be. And as He's glorified, well, you're going to be even more greatly blessed and encouraged because we're accomplishing what we've been created to do. Now, verse 15, we come to the Captain Obvious statement of the day. Look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer. All right? Now, in case that is something that hit you by a bit of a surprise this morning and you're going, oh, really? I mean, please reach out to us this week. We need to maybe pray for you. We'd love to just come alongside you. But, I mean, this is obvious, right? We understand don't suffer because of your own stupidity right if anyone suffers as a murderer a thief an evildoer or as a busybody in other people's matters peter's saying don't let that be the case don't let anyone don't let none of you suffer in in regard to these things why well there's no glory in that no matter how you spin it right if you're suffering you try to claim man i've just been so persecuted and you're being persecuted because you've just been you know meddling in other people's affairs it's interesting how peter ties in busybodies along with murderers, right? I mean, but if you're meddling, and if you're just, again, doing things in a very selfish way and you're being persecuted for it, then there's no, there's no glory in that, right? There's nothing that you can receive from that no matter how you spin it. Yet, he says, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter. You know how many times the word Christian shows up in the Bible? You would think a whole lot, wouldn't you? But only three times. Twice in the, in the book of Acts and then right here. And it started out, that term Christian, started out as being used as a, more of an insult. It meant little Christ. And it was used as a term of derision against Christians. But for the true Christian, they knew whatever mocking they endured was going to be worth it. And, and so Christians began in this day to really use that almost as a badge of honor, which left the world all the more flustered. Maybe, maybe you've had to endure mocking at the hands of other people or kind of the the whispering the backbiting you know the 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 people just kind of looking at you insulting you for your faith in jesus but listen don't be ashamed don't be bothered by what others might say use it to stand strong for christ and bring greater glory to him and again know that it will all work out in your favor in the end Look at what we see as we move to the end of our message here, verse 17. For the time has come for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us first, what will be the end of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Now, if the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Now, what Peter is addressing here is the judgment that the church is receiving in the world presently and by the world. This is not talking about the judgment of God. Understand something, that Jesus, for the believer, Jesus already paid the penalty for your judgment. 
Your judgment was already meted out on Jesus Christ on the cross as he received the judgment of God for your sins and for my sins. In other words, our our judgment has already come. When we've put our faith in Jesus, judgment is over with. We're no longer judged for these things. Peter's not talking about let the judgment of God come now for those that are part of the house of God. No, he's talking about the judgment that Christians are receiving right now in the world and by the world. The persecution, the the hatred. Hey, listen, he says, if Christians are dealing with that now, he says, what's going to come of those that are the unbelieving, that are the disobedient when God's judgment comes against them? This is what Peter is getting at. If Christians face this kind of heat now, what will become of the unsaved in a later day when they're judged for their ungodly deeds? So in other words, understand, I mean, whatever the world brings at you, you're saved, you're covered in the righteousness of Christ, you know where you're heading, but for these people, not so much. So Jesus says, we need to pray for our enemies. We need to pray for those that, that persecute you and, and revile you. So we need to pray that they would have their eyes open and that they would come out from the judgment that they're under. Hebrews 9 tells us that it's appointed once for, for man to die and then the judgment. But again, we rejoice in the fact that our judgment has already been taken care of at the cross. And if you're listening in today and maybe you are watching this at a later time and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you don't know what it means to have your sins forgiven, understand that Jesus came and died on a cross. And as he did, he was doing so for you and for me. And he did that so that he could take the the very judgment of God for our sins, the, the wrath of God that we deserved for our disobedience. He took that upon himself. He took all of your sins and allowed God to judge that sin so that by faith in Jesus and putting our trust in Jesus, we could receive his righteousness instead. Listen, if you've not made that connection and you've not asked Jesus to forgive you of your sin and to come and be your Lord and Savior, I I encourage you, would you do that today? It doesn't take signing up for a church. It takes you just simply calling out to God and saying, Jesus, save me. I recognize I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I need you. And he did the work for you. He died on a cross and he rose again three days later. And he's in the heavens interceding for you, ready to come again and bring you to where he is. I'm excited for that. Are you ready? Put your trust in Jesus. And this is what Peter's getting at here. That's why he says in verse 18, and again, he's quoting from Proverbs 11, verse 31. If the righteous one is scarcely saved, where will the ungodly and the sinner appear? Therefore, let those who suffer according to the will of God commit their souls to Him in doing good as to a faithful creator. Commit your souls to Him. We're not guaranteed a smooth ride, but we're guaranteed to get to the other side. In fact, Acts chapter 14, verse 22 says, we, may, we must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. We must through many tribulations enter the kingdom of God. It's, it's a miracle to begin with that any of us are saved, but it's an ongoing miracle to see us withstand the onslaught of the world and sin and be 
preserved to eternal life. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing for us. So commit your souls to him in doing good as to a faithful creator. He's the one that made you. He's the one that made this world. He's the one that's allowing the things in your life that you're going through. So commit your souls to him as to a faithful creator who started the work and will finish the work and he will bring you through. So with that being said, we've seen today that we're going to suffer, but we can commit our souls to him. We can continue on to serve others through our gifts and be a blessing. That's one way that we get ourselves out of that kind of pit of misery is by focusing on others and serving one another. Using your gifts to bless others and now committing our souls to our faithful creator, knowing that suffering accomplishes his purposes because he's glorified in and through it all. So as Galatians 6, 8, 9 says, let us not grow weary while doing good for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Let's continue on with a heart of rejoicing in our Savior and looking to Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for our time together here today and, and just for this word that we get to look at and be reminded, Lord, of, uh, of all that You're accomplishing, all that You've done for us, how You've equipped us to serve one another and to bless one another. May we begin to put that in practice even so much the more in these days that we live. Let us not grow weary, Lord, in doing good, knowing that in, in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. Lord, I pray for those right now that might be discouraged, might be in a point of losing heart. I pray that you would pick them up and that they'd be those that, again, renew that commitment to you as to a faithful creator and find us that encouragement and hope and blessing in you as they live for you and seek to be used of you. So God, lead us on now, we ask in your awesome name, Jesus. Amen.